0: Well, uh, happy 4th of July weekend. Uh, it's going to be an awesome uh, weekend, a good weekend of celebration. You know, I want to remind everybody that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God as Christians. And so that is, that is our priority. It should be our priority. But we can't forget that we've been placed in a country where we're offered a lot of advantages. We're offered a lot of freedoms. One of them is to be right here today. And that didn't come without a cost. A lot of people over the last couple of hundred years of our existence have given their very lives to preserve that. And so that's what we're celebrating this weekend when we celebrate the fourth as Christians. And so I hope that you all have a wonderful uh, weekend. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for opening our eyes this morning. We thank you for your presence as we worship you today, as that's our purpose. I pray that we would all remember that and that we would never forget the blessings that you have uh, rained down upon us. God, we love you, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, last week, I had to catch Randy's message online. haven't been here for a couple weeks. Uh, we, we started on vacation on the 18th. I uh, went to South Florida, and by the third day, we contracted COVID, and uh, so got pretty sick. You know, we I found out something. They won't let you fly when you have COVID, so we had to rent a car and, and drive 15 hours home all while exhibiting, like, mild flu symptoms, uh, but we're here today. Um, I'm glad to be on the green side of the grass, let's put it that way, and, um, you know, we're over it, we're, we're not contagious, so don't be worried about catching it from us. Uh, got a couple of symptoms left, one of which is this fatigue thing. Man, that's real. I mean, I am, uh, I, I've been really tired. and So if I cough a little bit, you know, bear with me. If I end up sitting down on the stage here, just go, just, just roll with it, so we'll be, we'll be cool. So uh, So bear with me through all of that. Again, we're just happy to be here. Randy's message, I did get to pick it up online. And it was a good one, and it was about uh, basically not doing things that would make our weaker brothers or sisters stumble or, or fall. You know, we may have freedoms in a lot of different things. That doesn't mean everybody has those same, those same freedoms. You know, we, we may not have freedoms in other things that others do. And so the whole gist of Randy's message was that we need to take care, uh, not to put each other in positions where we might fail or fall. Just because we have certain freedoms doesn't mean that we should exercise them all the time, especially, especially when we're attempting to engage in real ministry. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about what real ministry is. And so I was looking up the definition of ministry. That's kind of how I start things out. And I came across one that was meaningful to me. It's a person or a thing through which something is accomplished. That's what ministry means. And so, in thinking about this, there's a lot of things that are called ministry in our world today. You know, in Great Britain and places like Canada, they have a prime minister. And their cabinet, they're called ministries. They have a ministry of education or a ministry of defense. But but what does it mean? What is the term ministry? apply to in our personal faith. What does the word ministry mean? Well, in the Bible, excuse me, in the Bible the word ministry is mentioned some 70 odd times, both in the Old Testament and in uh, the New Testament. And so during this, uh, putting this together during this week, I read most of those 70 instances when ministry is mentioned in the Bible. And I found a pattern that emerged. That was pretty clear. See, in the Old Testament, the word ministry was most always used in the terms of what the Levitical priests did within the temple, the the ministry that they were performing inside the temple. But in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, it kind of changes. The context of ministry goes from within the walls to the temple, to, to the ministry of the gospel, and to the Word of God. Jesus was said to have had a ministry that lasted some three and a half, four years from the time that he was around 30 years old until the time that he was crucified on the cross. Now, Jesus spent time in the temple. Jesus taught in the temple, he did, but he spent the vast majority of his time beyond the walls of the temple. And so he spent most of his time engaged in ministry. He was constantly engaged in ministry. And, and, you know, just like the Old Testament custom of baptism and the Old Testament custom of the, the Passover meal, Jesus gave those things a brand new meaning. And so ministry takes on a new meaning when Jesus comes onto the scene. Whereas ministry was within the temple before, now ministry is in the hearts and the minds of believers. And so it's taken a whole new, new meaning. <clears throat> if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting with verse 9, 9 through uh, 27 to be specifically. If you want to follow along in your Bible or on your, your Bible app. And so I'm going to be drawn from those verses. And so Paul in these verses, what he's doing is he's explaining um, what ministry is in his daily life, the definition of how he uh, ministers uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first thing Paul does in the first several verses is he's justifying that he is a minister, and ministers in general deserve pay for what they're doing. They deserve their wages for presenting uh, the gospel. And he uses the Old Testament verses uh, of not muzzling an ox uh, to, to justify that. And so I'll tell you what, as a minister myself, I really appreciate those verses because, you know, I like to eat just like the next guy. Some people think I like to eat more than the next guy, but I, I do appreciate the fact that Paul's making this case that ministers deserve to be paid. But then Paul underscores his defense uh, of this compensation by taking pride that he took nothing from the Corinthian church. He's prideful that he's taken no pay from them. And we're gonna see, I think, why he, he made that statement as we continue on through these verses. So in verse 19, Paul says this, "'Though I am free and belong to no one, "'I have made myself a slave to everyone.'" to win as many as possible. Okay, so Paul says he's owned by no one. And why is Paul making that statement? There's several reasons. Paul's got a lot of things that are going his way. One, Paul's father was a Greek. So Paul's a Roman citizen. And so he's a Roman citizen of a, of a powerful empire, and that comes with a lot of distinct advantages. Freedom of movement. he has a lot of freedoms that a lot of people don't have. But Paul's also a Jew. But he's not just any Jew. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a teacher of the law. That that put him above this really hard line between the haves and the have-nots of the Jewish people. See, Paul was, was, was wealthy as a Jew. So that was an advantage for Paul. And so being a Jew... Paul was made subject to the laws of Moses. But here's something else, Paul was a Christian. So as a Christian, Paul was freed from the law, from the slavery of the law. And so Paul's claiming here now though, he's got all this stuff, he's got all these things going for him. He's got all these advantages over everything else around him. He can leverage those things at any time. But Paul is saying here that that he's given up those freedoms. He's willing to give up those freedoms for the sake of what? For the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To become a slave for the sake of all mankind. So why did Paul brag about not taking anything from the Corinthians? Why did he do that when he had every right to, to be paid? I think it's because he understood his audience. See, we know that the Corinthians, one, they were living in a very pagan environment. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on around him. But they were also a new church and they were spiritually immature. So I think by looking at the context of all of Paul's letters, I think that Paul knew that requiring compensation from them would basically distract them from absorbing the Word of God. I really think that's why Paul said that he, he bragged about not taking any compensation from them. Let's go ahead and, and look at some other verses here. <clears throat> Verse 20. Paul said... To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but subject to Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Okay, that's a lot. That's saying a lot. But but Paul's saying he's going to be slaves to all. Who, who among us wants to be slaves to anybody? I, I don't. I'll be honest with you. Quite frankly, I want to be the king of my own little world. I mean, that's my biggest desire is like to be left alone, to be king, be ruler of everything that I do. That's what I really want in my soul. That's what I would really like to have. And I think a lot of you might say the same thing. But let me ask you this. What does it take to do real ministry? Can we be the king of our only, own little world and minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think we ought to ask ourselves that on a daily basis when we want to be the ruler of everything. Paul goes on to say this. He said, To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel. So Paul says, To the weak I became weak. You know, there's a lot of scholars that kind of argue about this. Does that mean that Paul became a sinner to save the sinners? And it's like, I I don't really think so. I think if you read uh, Paul's readings, if you look at the context of everything that he says, I would argue against that notion. My best guess is what Paul was saying is that he wasn't above associating with people that were living in the margins. He had a good model for that. It's called Jesus Christ. Jesus hung around with the sinners to save the sins. Jesus didn't engage in sin, but Jesus showed compassion to the sinners. And I'd say what Paul meant here was he was willing to go places that probably ticked off some people. Again, just like Jesus. You know, Paul's imitating Jesus here, folks, when he says that he became weak for the sake of the weak. He's willing to go beyond the walls to go where the sinners were so that he could minister to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you, Sundays here at Journey Church are very comfortable for me. I've been coming here for 22 years. And I mean, I I love coming here. we missed for two weeks. It was kind of, I was looking forward today, you know, to come and, and see some faces that I hadn't seen for a while. You know, I am comfortable in my own skin at Journey Church I, I really am. This is my family, and and it, it it has been, it will be, and probably always will be. But let, let me tell you, when I've been out in the world, it's been a little bit different. Randy talked about Eric being here for eight years. This year, I've been in ministry for eight years. And when I came into ministry, and I came into this community, there's some things happened that I wasn't expecting. If you would have told me maybe 15 years ago that I would be in a public setting where people are looking at me with hate and contempt because of what I believe, I would have thought you were foolish. But folks, that's happened. That has happened to me. I've lived that right here in the middle of the Bible Belt in Versailles, Kentucky. I've experienced it. But but when in Paul's context, I've got to ask myself this question. I've asked myself this a lot over the, the last couple of years. Are those folks looking at me with contempt because of my belief, are they my enemy? Are they God's enemy? Are they enemies to the church? Or are they simply sinners in need of a Savior? And I think the latter is true. And so Paul's Paul ha- doesn't have contempt for those folks. We should not have contempt for those either. And I think what Paul's telling us is we need to be prepared to leave our comfort zone. We don't need to get holed up in here, blocked in by these walls, and ignore the people out there that haven't heard the Word of God. You know, it's almost mandatory that I talk a little bit and go off topic about this Roe versus Wade reversal. I think every minister probably feels that right now. You know, a friend of mine wrote an interesting post on Facebook, before this, this ruling came down in our courts. And, and he was asking this question, I've never considered this before, but, but he was asking the question why is a pro life stance considered strictly a Christian stance? Why is that? You know, what he was saying, he was making the argument that it's more science than it is religion when you really break it down. His point was that the unborn lives deserve to be protected because unborn children shouldn't be killed. Pretty simple. So, so why is that, that that's seen in our community just as a Christian stance? I'd agree that it's, that it, I, I do agree, it shouldn't be strictly a faith-based position, but it remains a really passionate issue for people within the Christian church, and it should be. And, and You know, I'm one of those people. I celebrate this reversal. Uh, Less than celebrate, it's more like I'm relieved that that maybe some type of immoral common sense has taken root. Uh, So I'm I'm comfortable with that. But, folks, I'm going to predict something. While we're celebrating and spiking the football, I predict that stronger waves of anti Christian sentiment are coming. I think that Christians. Not Christianity. I think Christians are going to take a beating over this. And I think we need to steel ourselves to that predictability. That's going to happen, I believe. I honestly think that it is. Paul says he gave up his freedoms for the sake of the gospel. We need to steel ourselves to be ready to do the same thing. If that's what it takes, then we need to be prepared for that. Paul's model, which is just imitating Jesus is a good one that we can follow, a good model that we can follow. So, so Paul claimed to be slaves to all for the gospel, to become what he needed to uh, for his particular audience. To the Jew, he became a follower of the law. To the Gentile, he gave up his freedom from the law. To the weak, he gave up his strength. So Paul seems to be saying this. If I could paraphrase this, I think this is the way I would put it. Paul was saying, I will do anything short of sin for the sake of the gospel. If you're a note taker and you want to write something down, write that down. We need to be able to have that as our rallying cry, that we will do anything short of sin for the sake of the gospel. Paul was saying he was willing to meet people at their level to find them where they were. He avoided looking down on people. And just like Jesus, Paul developed relationships of love and integrity. Paul was relational. If you look at Paul's letters, his salutations and his closings, they all mention specific people. So Paul was big about making relationships. He never compromised the truth, but he always coupled the truth with grace just like Jesus did. And so when he developed that trust, to my opinion, that allowed the seeds of the gospel to take root. And that's what it's all about. Paul kind of shifts his metaphors here in verses 24 and 25. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So Paul starts talking about runners in a race, and and that's an example, in my opinion, of Paul knowing his audience. Because in Corinth, every couple of years, they had a big Olympic-style game, and a big part of those games were were running, were, were foot races, And so these people in the Corinthian church that Paul's talking to, they could relate to that. They could understand that. And so he learned that tactic Paul did from the master, from Jesus. See, because when Jesus was in the countryside, his parables were taught in agrarian terms. When he was on the shore of the sea, he talked about fishing. When he was in a metropolitan area, he talked about construction. And that's what Paul was doing. Jesus became what he needed to for his audience, and Paul was doing the same thing for his. You know, I know a little bit about running. Um, I don't run anymore. I used to. A lot of people know, see me limping around. You know, I have bad knees, bad hips, uh, probably because I ran too much. But but my brother-in-law is a big runner. He's a little older than me just by a couple of years. But he still runs today, but he was a competitive runner in college. In fact, in high school in 1982, he was a state champion at the 3,200 meters. And not just did he win a state championship that year, but he broke the 3,200 meter record. And that record stood until June the 3rd of this year. 39 years He held the record in the 3,200 meters, so yeah, he was a pretty good runner. Kid beat it by a couple of seconds, and he had to finally concede. Uh, But at the peak of his training regiment, though, he he explained this to me once, especially when he was training for marathons. He would say, I will go out in the morning for an easy 10-mile run. Those two words don't really, phrases don't really go together, right? An easy 10-mile run. That wasn't over, though. And when he got home from work, he would do a hard 14 miles. And he did that six days a week. 140 miles a week was his peak training regimen. I don't understand that. I can't see how he did that. Uh, He competed on a lot of different levels. And I remember that he had won a handful of road races, Uh, when I was running, but he ran in a whole lot more than than he ever won. As a matter of fact, most of the races that he ran, he never even finished in the money. And probably even more races than that, he wasn't even able to finish. But but he trained like he was going to win every one of them. And that's what Paul is saying that we need to do. You know, our efforts in real ministry may not always bear fruit. I will tell you most always it probably won't bear fruit. I've seen people get really discouraged when they build themselves up to share the gospel and and then the first time they try it out, people don't respond. That's going to happen. But we need to exercise our disciple-making muscles as if everybody we talk to is going to accept Christ. That's the attitude that we need to go into it with and that's what Paul is encouraging us to do. You know, I played sports in high school, and I've got a few trophies left over from that. I remember how much I wanted those trophies. When when we go to the banquets and they were lined up on the table, the bigger, the shinier, the better, that's the one I wanted. And I was fortunate enough to win a few trophies. They're now in a box, and they're in my workshop, and there's pieces broken off of them. They're dented, they're faded. And I'm the only person that knows I have them now. And those trophies just don't, they just obviously don't last. They fade. But Paul says he's working for a crown that never fades. He's working for those trophies that'll never break, ones that will last. And so another question I have for you, what crown are you chasing? You know, I I talked before about the the definition of ministry being a person or a thing with which something is accomplished. And, you know, Jesus, as I mentioned, had a ministry on earth, and it was a vehicle to accomplish a very specific task. Through his ministry, I firmly believe that Jesus developed a movement of multiplication, one that gave birth to the Christian church that we're all a part of today. It started out with just a group of guys and women on a hill, in Israel, and now it 's become a religion billion strong worldwide and still growing the largest religion on the planet so like paul 's ministry that he 's describing in the in the book of Corinthians, our ministry needs to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ So, so what does real ministry look like? I want to wrap up. by by making three observations, three things that real ministry should be. And the first one is this. Real ministry should be sacrificial. As Americans in this wonderful country, we have an incredible sense of entitlement. You know, a good portion of our country right now is protesting because they feel like they've lost some of their entitlements. And so there's times when we just go way overboard with that. And so, but we live in a place where we, we feel like we have... Entitlements. But the fact is, you know, we are fortunate to live in this country to be entitled, and we call them blessings sometimes, and I'm not sure if that's always the case. But Paul's lesson to us is that we need to be willing to sacrifice the things we feel entitled to for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't draw any conclusion other than that. We should be prepared. We need to steel ourselves to the fact that we may lose. Some of those freedoms and entitlements. The second thing is this ministry is intentional. You cannot look at Paul's writings and see that he wasn't intentional about the gospel of Christ, about ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. No other conclusion can be drawn by that by reading his words. He was intentional about his obedience to Christ's mission, he was intentional, he planned it out. He thought it through. He lived it out. He was prepared to do what it took to win the prize, as he would say. And if we're going to succeed in real ministry, it's not going to be by accident. It has to be through our intentionality. Paul's letters to the Corinthians, Paul's letter to that church, is a letter to Journey Church. We need to be prepared. We need to be intentional about the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, the most important important thing that ministry has to be, I think ministry has to be about multiplication. Paul talked about ministry, and he isn't talking about building church buildings. He's not talking about building hospitals. He's not talking about just being good to other people, just being a good person. He's not talking about just offering compassion to the poor or just being concerned about the marginalized. No, Paul is talking about winning souls for Jesus Christ. The good news, the gospel, is about growing God's kingdom. So what do we need to do to accomplish the ministry of Jesus Christ? Jesus gave us the answer. He said, as you're going about your daily lives, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Trinity. Teach them to obey God's commands. And know this, I'll be with you forever, even until the end of the age. That's our marching call. That's our orders. The word ministry means a vehicle by which something is accomplished. You know, we call a lot of things ministry these days. We really do. We, we, we call feeding the poor, we call it ministry. Uh, next week, Randy talked about us feeding people in the Ukraine. You know, this, this kind of has a little special place for me. I have a friend, my, my dental hygienist, Luda, who is Ukrainian, and she was excited to hear about this. She may even be here with some friends on Sunday. And she says, because there's people in the Ukraine, food is a real issue. Because the Russians have, have, have knocked down supply chains through the Black Sea and across the land, like Randy said, even in the refugee camps in other nations. And so it's a huge thing that we're doing in packing meals. It's an awesome undertaking, and it's going to be full impact. There's ministries in our community that seek to house the homeless. There's ministries uh, in our community that that, that assist people who are struggling with addiction. Right here in our church, Celebrate Recovery attempts to do that. There are ministries that that move to assist people who are thinking about abortions, who have gone through with it and suffering the aftermath from it. All those are huge. And all those are absolutely important and critical for us to be taking part in. But let me tell you something that might sound a little controversial. If we work hard enough to solve all of these horrendous problems, but ignore the gospel of Jesus Christ, what have we done? What have we done? What did we accomplish? Folks, for real ministry, I think the ministry that Jesus sees as perfect is adding to those names that are etched in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that's not our goal, if that's not the goal of our race, then maybe we're on the wrong path. You know, if you want to minister like Jesus did, I think a good place to start would be to adopt his priorities. One of his biggest priorities was that of prayer. Jesus prayed to his father constantly. And it's a good model for us to follow. I'm gonna tell you how I'm gonna close this, how I'm gonna wrap this up. I'm gonna to pray to close this. But but after that, the folks are gonna come back and we're gonna sing another song. But we've got this huge space up here. And we've tried to make things comfortable for you. We've got kneelers. We're gonna have people here if you want someone to pray with you. I'm gonna be standing up here. Let this be a time of prayer. A time where we can we can come up and we can just... We can just talk to our God. We can pray as a form of worship together in this space. And so I want to invite you all. Uh, if you need something, if you, if you need me to pray for you something, I'll be glad to do that. I'd love to do that. You don't really need me, but I'll be glad to do it. I'll be glad to, to pray with you. I need prayer. I mean, I, I do. We, the, the, we've been through COVID, for crying out loud, and so I always need prayer. So this is a time set aside for us to do that, for us to address a holy God who's given us direct access to him through this, this, this prayer thing that's amazing. Let me pray for us, then I want to invite you guys to come up. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for today. Man, I'm glad to be here. We, we thank you for, for plopping us in this country. What are the odds of all of us being a part of a country that that doesn't deny us access to you, that doesn't try to do that like they could? God, we're just so blessed by your presence today. I pray a blessing on each and everyone that's here today. God, I pray that you would take away whatever inhibitions they have that's keeping them in their seat, And bring them forward, God, just to deal with you. God, you love to hear our voices. Now would be a great time. Lord, I pray that your word was spoken, not mine. Pray that you would nullify my opinions and, and just reinforce your word. God, we love you. We offer everything we have today in your son's precious name. Amen.